Do you hate it when your yoga students take a variation of a pose that you didn't tell them to? Do you wish that you could bring them into line with a simple press of a button? Well now you can. From the people that brought you tasers for toddlers, the new Zappo mat is an electrically charged yoga mat. Via your convenient pocket-sized wireless controller, you can send 10,000 volts of abundant, mindful electricity through your student's body. Gone are the days of them taking child's pose instead of holding down with dog for 20 breaths. Show them that you always know better than them. Make them honor you like the guru your Buddha statue from Kmart knows you can be. Zappomat, because the teacher is never, ever wrong. Seek above all for a game worth playing. Oh baby, witchcraft contagious, I've felt it for ages. We're out of these cages in this house of mages. It's witchcraft, it's dangerous, Hello and welcome to this episode of Make Yoga Magic Again, the House of Majors podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arulian Cumming. I am a mischievous mage, a ritual embodiment, yoga teacher, trainer, and a myriad of other weird and wonderful things. So this episode is gonna be one of a series of shorter episodes which are gonna be focused on particular subjects which I think are important for really anyone to know. And that's why I'm doing them as public podcasts because originally these topics were going to be addressed in the ritual embodiment tantric yoga teacher training that I'm running with the first round of students right now. And it will be expanded upon more in that than on here on this podcast. But I did want to just touch on the basics here and yeah, I guess start, you know, some conversations around the topics and yeah, trying to do it in a lighthearted as possible way, as you may have noticed I like to do. So as you would have seen from the title, the reason why I've kind of called it that is because I had a chat with the teacher trainees quite early on about not taking everything that I say as the way, but rather a way. Because it's interesting because we're, we're lucky to have, even though we've lost a lot of the yogic and tantric sources uh, due to like, for example, the, the Muslim invasions wiped out a lot of the tantric scriptures and, and Buddhism in India and stuff like that. Um, but as opposed to a lot of other countries, we, we've got a lot of sources. And in fact, most of them actually haven't been translated yet from Sanskrit, so we're continuously getting more and more, uh, you know, good quality translations. So we're continu continually leveling up on our, our knowledge. But what 
has come about, and we can see this already in, in general religion and general spirituality, uh, not everyone agrees on something. And so we see in different yogic schools and lineages, and especially in Tantra, that even though someone might have the same, like same, even Tantra, right? So Tantra is a, is a script, and that's what the Tantras are. So someone might have the same script, the same teaching from a, from a teacher, but interpret that differently, and that could end up branching off into a whole different lineage and whole different uh, series of practices and goals uh, within a tradition. And so this happens all the time. I mean, even look at you know mainstream Abrahamic religions. A lot of it is from essentially the same book or different translations of the same book. And we often find, well, I often find, and <laughs> I've seen this a lot, the first version of something that we get introduced to, we have a hard time uh, seeing different versions of that or having someone, uh, you know, <laughs> display or, or show us or tell us that there is a different version. And this is, I think, what perpetuates you know, a lot of social media stuff where everyone's arguing with each other because they think that their opinion or the way that they were taught something is the only way. And, you know, in, in ways it's, it, it's a positive thing because obviously, you know, you're, especially if you're teaching it or really uh, deep in a tradition, it's obviously a very positive thing that you love it so much and you think it is the best because, you know, that's why you're in it essentially and not in another tradition or another style of yoga, for example. But it becomes very problematic when we start to tell everyone else that they're wrong and our way is the right way. Because if history has told us anything, it's that no one can ever agree on one particular you know, way of doing things. And to me, especially from a tantric point of view, this is the, the, the idea, you know, so I won't go too far into this now, but, you know, essentially from my uh, tantric kind of viewpoint, which is non-dual Shaiva Tantra, which is kind of seeing everything emanating from the one source. So like the one source kind of breaks into, you know, Shiva and Shakti and uh, these you know, basically the universe is experiencing itself through all these vantage points, through us. And we can't have the same exact experience because we're all, uh, we're still, we're all operating from slightly different vantage points. And that's kind of the idea because if we're all seeing the same thing, there would be nothing else to see if that's making sense. Like if, you know, if we also saw everything as blue, you know, yes, it'd be, everything would be blue, but if I see blue and you see red, we can introduce each other to different colors and have a synthesis of purple. I don't know if this is making sense. I'm gonna do a, a more deep podcast on this kind of idea, but I just wanted to drop it in because it's relevant to what we're talking about here. And so, for, as an example, when I first did my yoga teacher training, I felt they were very dogmatic about particular aspects, basically. And what I mean by that is that they, it, it felt to me that, and, um, you know, other students as well, that 
their, they felt that their way of doing things was the way or the best way or even the only way. And, you know, when you're doing your yoga teacher training, you know, it's important, I guess, to, to really listen to your teachers and to, you know, take, what, take on board what they say because that's why you're training under them. But this can, yeah, end up making you a, a yoga snob, essentially. Uh, and what I mean is that when you see other practices or other styles that go against this dogma or go against this best way or this proper way, then you kind of turn your nose up at it and and be like, oh, well, they don't know. It's like, you know, we know better. Um, and as time has gone on, not only do I think that is not the case in anything, um, but especially in yoga, because I see a lot of it. And yeah, there were certain things like, um, yeah, like I originally, I was taught that, you know, from my original teachers, I, they might have changed their mind now, but they had a very uh, detrimental view on yin yoga. They believed that yin yoga was just straight up bad for you for a lot of reasons. And they made some good points and I see where they're coming from and there is some problematic aspects for it, but I feel like a blanket, a blanket statement, um, this is bad, is, is not productive and not constructive. Maybe it's like, oh, I think these aspects could be done better. Um, I see what they're trying to do. Uh, you know, and that, that can be applied to so many things. I feel like I'm so passionate about uh, just asking questions and unpacking things rather than just labeling uh, things as black and white, good and bad. Um, and that's non-duality, and that's what I'm really trying to share more of. So early on, I was, yeah, very careful and very clear as possible, uh, and I probably said it a few too many times to try to get the point across uh, to my students in that obviously I'm delivering everything in the way that I think is best at the current time because I'm always learning and growing, but that it's not necessarily the only way of doing things and everybody is different you know everybody's different physically right so men and women have slightly different anatomy especially around the hips um, you know a lot of these yoga practices that when people teach them so pedantically and so precisely like I, I'm all about precise alignment you know as someone who's come from a, a martial arts background and especially in things like Wing Chun where it's so uh, you know, biomechanically based where a slight like angle difference turning your foot can can completely change the structure of, uh, you know, whether you can block uh, something like a punch or, or not, or whether like you're delivering uh, enough power to do anything worthwhile. So I'm, I'm all about precise alignment, but martial arts has a very specific goal and that's to generate power and stability and and all this sort of stuff but yoga is different you know like you have to think what is the goal of what you're trying to achieve in a yoga pose and depending on what that goal is at the time that completely changes the dynamic of the pose and so just saying that every pose has to be done this way every time is not only uh i think detrimental and lacking in uh, giving you the ability to get the most out of a pose in different ways. But also going back to the anatomy thing, like a lot of these were developed by Indian male, male bodied 
um, humans, Indian men. And so, you know, it's been shown that like every culture has, you know, some slight differences in their anatomy. And yeah, it's just, it's just kind of like, I prefer giving a conceptual framework that people can use to explore themselves and can fine tune it to their own way of being. And so, yes, that works on, because in the way that I, I teach and in, in our tradition with our ritual embodiment training, we're focusing on the, the different layers. So they have been called koshas, but I uh, kind of follow, follow uh, Christopher Wallace's approach on uh, like not so much calling them koshas because that's more of the Vedantic um, model, um, whereas this one is a slightly different, more, more tantric-based model. And it's, it's much more in line with my history of, of learning stuff as well. And so I use that. But basically, just to summarize it, you've got your, you know, your physical layer. And so that's the structure of things. But then you've got uh, the next layer, which is kind of your mind, uh, you know, your heart-mind layer. And so even our minds and our psychology works differently. Um, yes, culturally, um, in the way that um, where I guess we've grown up in different cultures, but also like as we've adapted and, and grown, we have our own ways of understanding, of learning, um, and yeah, not, not everyone thinks and experiences things the same. Not everyone is inspired by the same things. Um, I feel like I'm going a little bit of a tangent, but I am, <laughs> I'm still kind of on track. If you, if you listen to my podcasts regularly, you know that I go on many, many tangents. And it's often a good thing, but I'm trying to keep this short and concise. So yeah, basically what I'm trying to say is that everyone has a slightly different version of their perfect pose of their perfect meditation practice of their perfect pranayama practice of yeah their way of bringing their version of yoga and i personally prefer to make a lot of space for that so the way that i'm it just sounds like i'm advertising the teacher training which i kind of am like i guess um because this is more focused for these for, for my students, uh, this particular podcast, but I wanted to share it with, with the general public. So feel free to open up the conversation if you are interested in uh, your yoga teacher training, shameless plug. But it's just something to be aware of in all of us, definitely as students, obviously for the reasons I mentioned, because we can get quite attached to the first version of things that we learn and close ourselves off to a lot of possibilities. And yeah, I remember going to some yoga classes with some of the other trainees in my yoga teacher training after we completed it. And basically just, yeah, kind of being snobs about the class and, you know, after the class being like, oh, did you see that they did that? I can't believe they did that pose, you know, like if only they knew they weren't doing it correctly. And, you know, there was this big thing about warrior one, uh, in my original training where they um, explained, and, I, and I, like, I partly agree with them. They gave some really good points about Warrior, Warrior One, um, but they basically just canceled out and said, don't ever teach it. And that's problematic because it's taught in a lot of classes and it, it allows some good transitions. But yeah, so I think, you know, rather than for me, rather than saying, don't ever do this, or if you do it, completely avoid it, being like, if you do 
use it or if you are even just as a, as a practitioner, as a student in someone else's class that takes Warrior 2, uh, sorry, Warrior 1, and for those who don't know, really know what I'm talking about, so Warrior 2, it's hard to explain without demonstrating it, but if you, I prefer to have the back set of toes slightly turned in, so you're pressing, if you're standing in a Warrior 2 position, so you have, just say you have your left foot forward, your toes directly facing forward, and then you have your back foot roundabout, heels lined up, but again, everyone's hip distance is, is different because the hips are slightly turned on an angle. Um, but the back set of toes is slightly turned inward, almost 45 degrees. And the reason why I do this, I think has, has been highly influenced from my martial arts training, but I found that it actually takes the pressure off the, the outside of the back ankle. So the right ankle in this, in this instance, if you're, if you're standing in with the left foot forward, as I was instructing, if you're perhaps standing around and trying this while, while you're listening to this, I'm avoiding not going too deeply into the pose. I'm going into automatic teacher mode now where I'm starting to instruct every little nuance of the pose. But the point I'm trying to make is that this uh, position with the back foot uh, where it is, is perfectly safe in a warrior two position because your hips kind of allowed to naturally go to about 45 degrees or wherever they want to go from the front foot. But when we turn into warrior one position and we're, we're turning our chest to the face of the front, our arms are up and uh, you know a lot of what happens is we're kind of encouraged to turn our hips to the front and if our back foot is, is planted like this about 45 degrees out then uh, and our hips are trying to move forward that we're actually twisting at the knee. Um, and and like potentially doing some damage to the hip as well. It's, it's just, if you've ever done it, it's just not a comfortable motion. And a lot of people just think that they're not flexible enough, but really this is, I, I think for most bodies, not really something our body wants to do safely. Um, and so my original teacher said to shorten the, the pose and to turn the toes directly forward, which I completely agree with. I think that's a great cue. Um, and I do that more so when I'm doing my personal practice. But the issue then lays, what do you do when you're in that position? Uh, because it's it's so much more mucking around if the transition is then from like warrior one to warrior two or from something else. And, and also just if like my students, for example, go and teach at yoga studios that have particular flows that they need to follow, which happens a lot. I've taught at yoga studios that, um, you know, you need to tick off these, you need to do um, a certain amount of sun cells, you need to do cat-cow before we do it, like, it, like within the first 10 minutes of the class, you need to do, yeah, like a warrior one to warrior two sequence. And so if they have to do that, they're gonna be stuck because like, what are they gonna do about that? So what I'm, I've done now is just explored warrior one a lot more and just found, which I'm sure other people have, but I haven't really seen many people talking about it, is that you can turn it more into a, a kind of a twist. So if you have a warrior two kind of position, you can actually keep uh, the lower part of the body and just rotate the upper part of the body to make it, it, it ends up kind of being like a twist. It is still a strange uh, feeling, but that is a more sustainable way of doing it without having to fiddle around with your feet too much. And that's just an example of, yeah, like finding a compromise, not saying this is wrong. Um, it's like this is potentially problematic because of these reasons. Uh, you know, here's some 
ideas to do instead, but if you do meet this situation, here's some ways to make it most um, approachable. And yeah, and I like in my experience, from what I've showed students as well, it is, it's, it feels quite good to be able to do that. So I'd recommend trying yourself, if you're used to doing a warrior one and jamming your hips uh, <laughs> towards the front and potentially doing some not so nice stuff to your knee, it just make it just re it's really important though to have your setup in warrior two to back set the toes in and uh, pressing into the back heel to get that drawing force zipping everything on in and up and then rotating the upper part of the body while keeping the hips about 45 degrees to the side anyway so if you're not <laughs> i'm just imagining someone who's not uh much into uh asana based yoga and uh, teaching and stuff like that, listening to all these these little pieces, bits and pieces. Um, because yeah, I guess I do, so much, so far on the podcast, I have talked more about the esoteric, uh, magical. Uh, careful about saying spiritual because you know I think there's not a difference between spirit and matter. I won't go on that tangent, but you know what I mean. Hopefully, you can see the point that I'm trying to make. In that, I think it's really really beneficial to ask uh, more questions about why someone thinks the way they do about a particular practice and also asking yourself why you possibly think uh, the way you do. And, you know, if you are so adamant that there is like one way to do it or there is the best way to do it, then, you know, where did you get that idea? Um, you know, how long have you had that idea? Have that prevented you from actually trying other things? You know, are these things that you say are wrong, uh, like have you actually tested these theories and ideas yourself? Or are you just regurgitating what someone else has said? Which to be honest is what happens most of the time. Someone says something about a, a subject or, or, or something and then people just repeat it. But you know, if no one's ever actually tested this theory and, and seeing if they're right or developing their own opinion about it, um, and, and not just because like it has a, like a solid incorrectness or something, but even just that it, it might've been perfectly true and right for that person because of, you know, as I mentioned, their, their anatomy, physiology, just because of their mental state, the way that they learn, the way they experience, like their, their kind of cultural lens. Um, but for some reason it doesn't work for you. Um, and if that's the case, it's not gonna work for everyone. So yeah, just encouraging so much uh, permission and lightheartedness. There, there's obviously problematic ways because it, it's a tricky conversation because one, I'm you know giving more permission and encouragement to not bring each other down too much and like criticize each other because we all have different ways of doing things. But the problematic aspect of that is that, you know, is it doing harm? Uh, and what I mean by that is, um, I'll do another one focusing on breath work, but as someone who's delved into breath work for a long, long time, um, I started doing regular, like everyday uh, breath work probably about 10 or so years ago. Um, from my Tai Chi and Kung Fu practices. It was very simple, but I mean, it's still the main thing. And I think people overcomplicate things sometimes. Um, but especially when it comes to things like connected breath work, which I'm still, I would still consider myself fairly new to. It's something that I've only really been fully delving into the last three or four years. Um, but I feel, still feel I have so much to learn. 
Um, and I know a couple of um, really, really uh, developed, really um, well-learned and well-trained and well-experienced uh, teachers in breath work. And I've had some really good chats with them about how, because it seems like a simple practice, you know, people do like Wim Hof or something, or people do these things, uh, and they're like, oh yeah, this is super easy. I can do that. I can teach that. But then they don't know how to support people through it. They haven't, yeah. Anyway, that's another whole episode. Um, but yeah, everything, you know, non-duality, right? So it's trying to find the balance between the two. It's, it's not being so dogmatic that you're discounting um, anyone else's opinion other than yourself and saying that everything is right but also just being careful to not give too much leniency to yourself, uh, yourself especially because it's hard with others because you know it's tricky because we, we tend to get judgmental of others without um, <laughs> analyzing ourselves first. Um, but yeah, just, just checking in on yourself and, and making sure that you're doing things properly, you're taking your time, and yeah, please just don't rush these things. Um, I mean, it, I'm all for learning by teaching because I think teaching people can be really, really beneficial because it makes it activates more parts of your brain for you to have to articulate certain aspects of it and make you rethink it in new ways and from different angles. Um, but there's a difference between going to a close friend or, or someone, you know, or a fellow yoga teacher and being like, hey, I'm, I've been studying this like, and I'm still like developing my learning around it, can I practice teaching it to you and you can give me some feedback, et cetera, as opposed to like going and like running a 20, 30, 50, 100 person event uh, to test out your teaching abilities on these practices that you just learned that are potentially hazardous to people who um, don't know what they're doing. Hopefully that makes sense. So I just wanted to share one more example before I... Uh, finish things up here for this podcast episode. And it was a situation that I was in a number of years back. I was at a yoga festival. It was kind of like this like holistic wellness space festival. And I went to a stall and at the time, because if you, if you don't know, before I actually started teaching yoga, I uh, was quite into ceremonial magic and esotericism and like occultism and I get essentially what that means it's, it's kind of like people more so these days or the circles the new age circles I, I'm a part of these days call it more shamanism whereas like there's different branches and it's called slightly different things um, and most what we call shamanism now is is technically neo-shamanism I won't get into that you, you can look it up there's heaps on there um but I was doing quite a lot of work with the runes and um, kind of Indo-European shamanism to a certain extent. It's um, known as like Saith or Seether. And there was different practices around it. Some used drums, some didn't use drums. And essentially I was just trying lots of different things. And I'd, I'd done that pretty consistently for at least about five years, I think at that time, maybe a little bit more. And at the time I was actually really focusing on doing journeying where you'd um, use a drum to to hit repeatedly at a certain tempo 
and get yourself into a trance state. And then once you got used to that and your body kind of like went into automatic mode, you kind of rode that as kind of like a ritual and you use your consciousness to explore. Uh, so I was exploring mainly the nine worlds in Norse mythology. Um, and yeah, but you can do this in lots of different traditions. And so the thing that brought up this, this situation and this conflict that's about to happen that I'm about to share is also at the time I was heavily into veganism. And so, I mean, I still mainly live a like vegan lifestyles, although I don't like labels these days. Um, uh, but yeah, at the time I was, I guess getting into light activism in the way that, yeah, like everything I did wore, uh, used, ate, was, uh, you know, as vegan as possible. And um, yeah, so anyway, I, I went to the store. She had a bunch of these shamanic drums and they were all obviously made with animal skin. And so I had a synthetic drum that was getting very kind of old and overused and falling apart, just wanted a very good quality one. So I was looking for a new one. And so I just asked her, I just said, oh, these are like really beautiful drums. Do you have any that aren't made from animal products or animal skins? Do you have any synthetic drums? And she just kind of, you know, whole, whole, whole like demeanor change. And she's like, you can't use synthetic drums for, you know, for like shamanism or for journeying. And you know, that's not how it's done. And I said, okay, that's interesting. Why, why is that? Um, and she started to talk about how that the, um, animal spirit of the animal is in the animal skin, uh, that's made with the drum and that animal spirit guides you through and protects you as you're journeying. And, um, obviously, this is a cultural idea. I still haven't looked into where this is particularly from um, because I haven't really thought about the situation for ages, but I'm going to do that now after this podcast, to be honest, because I, I forgot to look it up. Um, but she didn't even know. Uh, that was the thing as well. I, sa I said to her, I was like, oh, what culture is that from? Like, where, where did you learn your skills? And she outright said, she's like, no, it's not a cultural thing. This is actually how it works. This is how journey works. I would know. I've done this for 30 years. And I mean, that just got to me in a few different ways. One, that she didn't even acknowledge the culture that, you know, she was learning from. Um, so, and this was, this was, was a, you know, not that it matters strongly, but this was a, a white Australian woman. Um, obviously, uh, she'd been trained or learned from somewhere, but um, wasn't sharing what lineage or what culture it was, it was from, uh, <laughs> which was already kind of a bit problematic, but, yeah, she was just outright saying that this is the only way it works. And I'd already known from doing a couple of years worth of like sh shamanic work um, that I just did it with a cheap drum and I had really good results. I mean, maybe I haven't had the same results as, as she has with her animal drums, but to be honest, in my perspective, uh, like tools are really like magical tools or like journeying tools and shamanic tools are really just the tools. Like they're not the things that are doing the work. You use your consciousness or use your, uh, your ability to see these as, uh, tools to, to ride and to use ritual to accomplish these journeys or to accomplish this shift in consciousness. Um, if you're just relying on a particular tool, then that, I think that's like, yeah, you need to, anyway, I'm sure everyone has different opinions on this. Uh, but yeah, so for, for me, I actually had, I, so I ended up walking away from her and I actually ended up having some, some other lady, 
uh, walk over to me after and she's like, oh, thank you like so much for actually like speaking out on that and I'd love to know more because um, I'm getting, you know, into this kind of work and I, I felt the same about the animal skins. And anyway, I just have, ended up having a really lovely chat with this other lady who was just at the, at the festival, um, gave her some kind of advice and books that I was reading and practices that I did. Never saw her again, but um, yeah, it was just really nice to someone to come up after that <laughs> not so lovely uh, confrontation. And yeah, and I realized pretty soon into the conversation with this lady that, you know, she'd been doing her practices for so long that she just couldn't accept that there's other ways of doing things. And while she might be a great practitioner, I mean, who knows? She might've just been a charlatan. Um, like I'm sure she's done some work, but, <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah, for her to just outright discredit anything else other than her way of doing things is, it really doesn't sit well with me. Um, yeah, and yeah, that's what I'm just inviting. I'm hoping to get more, f um, I guess my intention for this episode of the podcast, uh, one for my yoga students who are listening to this, hello, <laughs> uh, to, yeah, not not become a yoga snob or too much of a yoga snob. Obviously, we are pretty awesome here at a ritual embodiment uh, yoga teacher training. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I really am happy with the way that we're developing things and sharing things, but um, our way isn't the way. It is just a way that I really enjoy and I think is beneficial, um, but, you know, different strokes for different folks. You know, everyone marches to the beat of a different drum. So, yeah, also leaving a lot of space for that. And that if you are getting very fanatical about your way of doing things, please uh, checkity check yourself. <laughs> um, obviously be passionate about your your vocation your skills um, but please don't say that it's the only way anyway I've said I feel like I've said enough I think this is done for this podcast so thank you so much for listening for bearing with me hope you like the little um, the little ad from our sponsors at the at the start of the podcast um, it, yeah, I just felt like doing something a little bit different. So I might make that a regular thing. Um, we will see. But yeah, if you are interested in more of what I do or of what we here at the House of Mages do. So House of Mages is a school of yoga, tantra and the magical arts. We are passionate about, re about reforging the link between yoga, tantra and magic. Um, as these are very, all three of these are very often misunderstood practices and they all have some very interesting links which if you've listened to more of my podcasts perhaps even especially the one about the seven chakra uh, rainbow system if you haven't listened to that highly recommend going and listening to that now and uh, i will speak to you all very soon thehouseofmages.com is where you can find everything otherwise you can find me on instagram facebook daniel irulian and yeah. Thanks again. I'll speak to you soon and make yoga magic again.